Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It, it's where we bring you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. Oh, I'm just so grateful, Sloan, for the, uh, your, yeah. your willingness to continue to try to bridge this huge divide between Brooklyn and the Bay Area. <laughs> you know, is it sheer yeah. or cream cheese? These are the issues you and I tackle head on. We don't, we don't shy away from such tough, tough topics. You know, it's actually a little known fact that it was this divide that led to rioters storming the Capitol, not not the, the not a lot of, of people know that. President. Yeah, I think we <laughs> I mean, we would have been covering this in our broadcast. I mean, uh, our pod. Yeah. What the hell are we doing? Here? Our, 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 our blomcast, <laughs> our pod log. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of any other show that connects the dots between Brooklyn, the Bay Area and pension funds as well as yep. we do, as well as we do. There might be yep. others that yep. try. Uh, I actually don't think there are, but um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a highly competitive space. <laughs> it is. It was. Uh, but so, there, is anything happening in this space? Like, I, I mean, I did no. Pre- so I just it's my turn right to do my no microphone. <laughs> blasting the microphone with my cough because yeah, I think some stuff went down this week. I think we dodged uh, an aggressive coup and we failed to yep. have a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, you know, those kinds of things that go into history books for the next thousand years. That was this week, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, like it was the, the, the MAGA shaman, uh, I mean, all of the, you know, a whole generation of new memes was spawned today. Like that dude carrying the podium. Oh, that's going to be there forever. The guy with the horns, uh, you know, (laughs) who only eats organic food. Apparently (laughs) he's went on a hunger strike because they were trying to feed him a sloppy Joe. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a new world, I mean, but let's maybe not talk about that news and let's focus on yeah. our news. So the, cause people, I think probably fed up with thinking about that news. And I have three bits of news I saw this week that I want to talk about. All right. What do you got? What do I got? All right. Um, first off the pandemic. And if you hear a little chanting in the background, I think it's cause I have small children just not realizing that we're doing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the pod log. <laughs> so apologies, dear listener, if you hear uh, a, a cameo from Henry and B unexpected. Um, the pandemic, according to APG, is in fact accelerating the pace of change in these organizations. So our little assumption from, um, I think we were, did that as our end of the year episode, maybe. Yep. Uh, yep. Was yeah, that and that's this- APG, the mega, the mega pension fund in, in Denmark, right? It's not Denmark, but thank you. It is the <laughs> mega pension fund in Amsterdam. It's actually, ah, yes. it may be in Amsterdam. I think PGGM is in Zeist and APG is in Amsterdam. Um, the, so the these Dutch guys, love to be confused for the Danish. Yeah, no, the, the Dutch don't want you to go there, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. The point is they have dramatically accelerated their pace of change and they are getting much more aggressive about overall digitization. And so that, that silver lining that we kind of floated, um, it was almost like we could tell the future. It's happening. The mm, news came mm-hmm. out. There was a quite a good story. So I think from my perspective, uh, if all of the pension funds in Europe and the U.S. begin to get their data organized and get their analysis ready for the future, um, yeah, that is a, a really positive outcome from this entire mess that we've been living through. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, get themselves, uh, you know, all together for the second coming, I guess, or the, the end of the world. Right. Like, I mean, how embarrassing would it be to have the U.S. government fall and to not have your data in line? It would be. I mean, ultimately, we always tell these pension funds, you have to know where you are to know where you're going. And mm. that's true even if you're going into the shitter. You know, you still got to know where you are. If the world's ending, if the world's ending, you'd like to know the path that you're taking to the end of the world. So my next news item comes to us from Sydney, Australia. Mm. Uh, almost, I'm not going to do the I was accent. Just gonna say, I almost did a really bad. <laughs> the land down under. Oh, you did it. You did it. You, did it. you did it. Yeah. I'm canceled. Oh, uh, we're done with this. Is, that was too much. Australian Ethical, what a fascinating organization. I've had the real pleasure to study this organization a little bit over the past few months. But the, the interesting thing, uh, yesterday they had some news come out. They've just crossed $5 billion in AUM. And so, that, so that's exciting And that a lot of Australians are now investing ethically, uh, as the $5 billion would tell you. But upon further inspection, when I was trying to figure out why are they getting $5 billion, I came to learn that the performance of this ethical investment organization is astoundingly good. It literally yeah. breaks the rules of modern finance. They have this massive screen where they wipe out 70% of the stocks in Australia. So they can only invest in 30%. So, you know, the whole idea like, hey, we need to have the whole market to ma maximize risk-adjusted returns. Wrong. Yep. yep. And I haven't yeah. told you the returns you make the yet. Choice. The yep. punch, that's the punchline. The return number is the punchline. And then they get really smart about the other areas that they're allowed to invest. They invest in niche companies, micro-cap companies. And so this constraint has actually become a comparative advantage. And their 10-year mm. return, 10-year in Australia, the ASX 200 is 6.61% per annum, and the Australian ethical performance is 11.7%, 10-year. Damn. It's legit. Double the bench. Double the bench. That's wild. You know, and so for those people that are like, ethics doesn't pay, we now have this incredible data point coming out of Australia that we can all point to and be like, yeah, but it does. In fact, it pays twice you know, as I, much. I, I love that, especially the anecdote about how it pushes them into more creative like niche strategies and, and into the micro caps to do things that other people aren't doing. Like that's that's really like the textbook optimist case about ethical and Isn't it? Uh, you know, ESG investing. Yeah, I love it. You know, it reminds me of some of the stuff I did on sovereign development funds between 2016 and 2018, where like everybody was like, these guys will never outperform because they're just pursuing development. And what you find is the <laughs> constraint to go and focus on development in these areas mm. um, pushes them to like think outside the box. Like, oh, there's no market for this here. So how do we build a market? And then when they build it, they participate in the outcome. And so that's mm. why like a fund like Singapore's Tomasek has 40-year performance that's in the, like the high teens because they Yeesh. built the economy. Oh, yeah, that's right. They did. So that's my that's I mean, my second news bit. I thought that was good news. Um, that's great news. I also like doing the news. I'll just tell you something. I like doing the news because it throws me back to Howard and Robin. You know, with like, <laughs> you ever watch Howard Stern? Yep. Like I have yep, this yep, fantasy yep. that one day you and I are just doing the news. What's in the news, <laughs> Sloan? I can really use my my radio voice. 
Ah, uh, uh, yes. But my last news, <laughs> my last news item for today is the news that Calpers is still struggling to appoint a chief investment officer. Um, mm. Calpers is the biggest pension fund in America. It's a public pension fund. It's very high profile, which means that everybody's constantly paying attention to what it's doing. And uh, we think we were all very hopeful they would quickly replace Ben Meng, who who left. Yep. He was a, quite a thoughtful guy, but couldn't quite handle the pressure of being don't, in the don't limelight. They, don't people keep calling that the worst job in, in pensions? I think they might. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is pretty tough. You're trying to save an organization that is very <laughs> underfunded. Traditionally, you haven't been able to compensate staff well enough to like, recruit and retrain, retain amazing people. But they have been changing that. They've changed some of the compensation, especially for the chief investment officer. But they are out there looking for somebody who can manage the portfolio and take the heat. And I think it's that combination. Mm, And they define the heat. Uh, I I don't know if it's a formal definition of heat, but the the way that (laughs) we're defining the heat is political pressure, um, oversight and really just media. Like people just write stories about you when you're the chief investment officer of CalPERS. And it's yeah. hard to find that package of people who are really thoughtful about investing and are willing to put up with the ridiculous attacks on uh, an investment organization investing in China. How dare you yeah. invest in China? Long, oh, God. You know? yeah, God forbid you happen to be like of Chinese extraction. And you're investing in China. I mean, then maybe uh, a House member will, will like read out, yeah, maybe. will accuse you of being a foreign spy on the on the you know the floor of the oh my U.S. Goodness. Congress, which happened to Ben. That happened to Ben. Well, I was going to say, you know, it's almost like you're telling the future about the past. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what you just did. You just told the future about the past. But that's like when my kids used to say, uh, "Fast forward back," when they meant rewind. Because they they only knew what fast forward meant, and so they'd be like, "Hey, Dad, fast forward back. I missed that." <laughs> anyway, well, that's, those are my, that's very uh, so that's cute. my news item. So that makes me pretty depressed about Calpers because it is one of the most critical organizations in the state here, perhaps the most critical, given that you know if we have a, an ongoing huge liability for Calpers, it it hits schools, it hits you know roadways, it hits all the public services. And so, you know, we really want to find a, a killer CIO that can add value, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's in all of our interests. So that, that to me, I felt like was a big story again. So that's my news. That, you know, this leads to me in like a really philosophical place because, you know, in all these, you know, we have this, this one fund in Australia that's absolutely killing it, right? We have this mega fund in the U.S. that's like having a hard time finding staff and, you know, it sort of begs the question, how do we know if a fund is even doing well, right? Like, how do we know any, like, what are the baseline concepts uh, that we that we might use? Like, obviously, we have to count the money and we have to figure out if it's enough money. But like, how the hell are people doing that? We've never really talked about that on the show. Yeah. And like, there's got to be a lot of tricks in the way they calculate the money because it's not the money oh God, today. Yeah. We're talking about pension liabilities extending out 100 maybe more years as, you know, some fireman gets married in his or her 80s to a 22-year-old who then goes on with a spousal benefit to live to 94. You're talking about 150-year liability here. 
Um, yep. How do we like figure out whether or not today we can match that? There's been a lot of thinking around that and it's incredibly politicized. And so we don't want to get ourselves in trouble, Sloan, talking about the politics of all <laughs> this. this. Is- we should probably phone a friend. F- phone a friend or a fall guy. Or, I, mean, fall guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, but it, it, it's crazy because like, you know, you think about how contentious just like quarterly earnings are for a publicly traded company. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and it's like, are you, do you, are you counting receivables? Right. Are you, you know, are you doing like all kinds of weird games with y- your balance sheet? Uh, when you talk about 150 years of that forward looking, that's insane. It is. That's a lot of uncertainty. Hello. And so who are we? Oh, we're, we're calling my good friend, Hugh O'Reilly. Hugh, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you, uh, Ashby? You got Ashby and Sloan here. We call this, Hi, Hugh. We call this Hi, the, Sloan. the quasi live portion of the, uh, of the pod log, pod log, we call it now, uh, <laughs> podcast, because we don't like to go back and edit. So don't say anything <laughs> that you don't want to be on the show. Uh, we could technically go back and edit things out, but we probably won't. So, Hugh, we're just thrilled to have you here because we're we're talking through. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so with the prelude that there's a loaded gun pointed at your head, aren't you glad to aren't, be on our show? <laughs> aren't you glad to be on our show? Um, we're talking about pension health. And we I was just mentioning some of the news, which is Calper still can't find a CIO. Uh, that that will fulfill all the really difficult requirements that that seat carries, you know, dealing with the press, dealing with the political pressure, and, oh, by the way, generating 7.5% returns. And it, it got us talking. Sorry, let's not forget with CalPERS, uh, the publicly televised trustee meetings. Ah, yes, the floggings. Brutal. <laughs> Brutal, yeah. You got to be willing to sit there and have um, people from the general public come up and accuse you of whatever they feel like accusing you of. And and you got to take it with a smile. Um, Hugh, you were chief executive officer of a Canadian pension plan, OP Trust. You didn't, you didn't have public meetings like that. I mean, maybe that's an interesting way to start. Maybe you could just give us a sense for how these Canadian plans, uh, you know, differ from the American plans like CalPERS. There's a whole bunch of ways they differ. So uh, let's talk about politics. Yep. Let's talk about governance. And let's talk about prudence. Mm, so all right. First, with politics. Um, and, you know, I would argue I'm uniquely placed because I worked for a cabinet minister in the Bob Ray socialist government that was elected in Ontario from 1990 to 1995. Um we weren't, no one particularly liked us, but what we did was the pension funds in those days, all of the public plans, essentially they, the way they operated in Ontario was, with the exception of OMERS, was a pay-as-you-go model. And, right. uh, and what happened was we made a decision to, uh, to have the plans, the government contribution actually be cash and the employee contributions into all the various plans to be cash and that they would be invested. And they were granted independence in the sense of they were all of the public plans by and large are what are called joint governance models, which means the employees have half the trustees, uh, employer uh, representatives constitute the other half, and they're entirely independent of government. So the discount rate is set by the board. Mm. Right. Not set politically. Um, and they invest in accordance with what they think 
are the best long-term interests of the uh, beneficiaries. And then the last point I would make is, and this is really controversial, and there's ups and there's pluses and minuses on this, but these people are paid uh, market rates because we hire investment professionals are hired who would otherwise work at uh, asset managers. So the issues you have in the U.S. are one politics. So. Uh, the legislatures, by and large, set the contribution rates. Goal of the legislature is for the for the government contribution to be as low as possible. That's problem number one. Problem right. number two: not independently governed. Problem mm. number three: not assessed in accordance with uh, with I would argue appropriate actuarial principles. Go back to discount rate. Then um, the uh, the staff aren't paid particularly well and that means you have to outsource the uh, the, the uh, asset management uh, which historically has led to fees it's harder to organize it this anyway I could go on and on sorry what, tell us what how you really wrong too. Give, give it, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> can you get anything else off your chest at the first minute of the show look I think I think what you've said here first off for those that don't know pay as you go pension plans are those where the money that's basically taxed is immediately paid. And and so the notion of moving from pay as you go to pre-funding is to say, look, these are really expensive and they're getting more expensive. So maybe we should save and invest. And maybe if we invest, we can generate more wealth faster. And that almost leads you to this notion of, well, what can we invest the money at? What is the percent that's fair? And that becomes in the US context, the discount rate. So I was just trying to give a little quick Quick definitions there for you, but I, I loved everything you said. Yeah, and you know, I, I wonder, like, if you could just zoom in on, you know, you you, you talked about actuarial, you know, actuarial assessments, and I, I guess maybe, like, for starters, can you give us a sense of how that's different from what we might think of as accounting? Well, accounting, what it does is it gives you a statement of your assets and liabilities. It's a snapshot in time, and it doesn't it doesn't purport to tell you uh, if you have an if uh, going into the future if you have sufficient assets to pay for your benefits. What mm-hmm. an actuarial right. what an actuarial analysis does is it determines if you have enough money to pay uh, to pay the benefits uh, today and into the future, and so. You use a discount rate to value your liabilities. That's the benefits of the plan. And you make a determination based on the discount rate, whether, uh, whether you need, whether there are sufficient assets on hand or whether you need to raise contributions or, or lower benefits. Or I suppose, uh, if there's too much money, lower contributions and increased benefits. But accounting is just a snapshot in time. Gotcha. And actually, and the actuarial look is the is looking forward the 150 year life of the plan. Well, it looks forward. Uh, uh, depend, yeah, looks forward and assesses and assesses the value of the liabilities on uh, how much the benefits you need to pay, and assesses whether or not you're fully funded then, and what you'll need to do into the future. Where the accounting will tell you the value of the benefits is you know 100 dollars, value of the assets is 100. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and like when you're thinking about the, the various like assumptions that you might use to, uh, make these assessments, um, one of the, the things that, that I did to prep was like pull up a, I think it's like the UK pension monitor from PwC and they have like a, a survey of practice at a bunch of plans and, uh, they listed, uh, prudent, average and, um, common assumptions. I like, uh, you know, so they would say like if you're, going to be prudent, you should assume that your your assets will return 6%, but people are actually assuming 7.5%. Um, 
why is that happening so much? Why are we not making the prudent assumption? Well, well, the simple reason is uh, if if the higher your discount rate, the lower the value of your liabilities, the less money you have to put into the plan. Mm, That's where it comes from. The way the discount rate is established in theory is, well, here's how the actuaries do it. They, They look firmly backward to predict the future. And what they do is they look at historic performance and they take the so-called risk-free rate, which is the law and government rate, plus 4%, plus 5% to, to set a discount rate. You can So that's the table stakes. I don't want to start getting into the other issues that I'm passionate about before we get the table stakes on discount rates organized. Yeah, look, that's a good reason for me to jump in because I think for a lot of people, it's like discount rates and, and, and accounting and, and ultimately like what these are all indicators for and, and like funding is pension health. Like, can I trust the government is actually going to be able to pay me? I know there's a lot of politics in this and, and certain people are going to push for certain discount rates that make my plan look well-funded. But if we've moved to a different discount rate, maybe it would look very underfunded. And so just in your experience, I know from working with you over the years that you're incredibly, um, you have an interesting way of thinking about pension health. And so I'd love to just have you explain it for the listeners to like, how do, how should we be thinking about the health of the pensions in our, in our kind of various states and counties? Well, the, the one thing that people who run pension plans, although, uh, I was an exception to this, is what they like to do is point to what their annual returns are and what their returns are over, say, a period of years, five years, 10 years. And they'll, and people will think, well, gee, you know, they earn seven, eight percent. They're heroes. Well, I learned there was a problem with this back when I was a pension lawyer because I was advising this plan. It's a true story, actually. This is turn of the century ish. So wow. it had earned like on average 12% a year. And they'd been improving the benefits as interest rates were falling. And the problem is, in order to be, what they needed to earn wasn't 12, but like 22%. this, This woke me up to the need to understand matching assets and liabilities because we right. talked about liabilities the higher the discount rate the lower the liabilities the lower the discount rate the the higher the liabilities and so being protected and hedging against the interest rates is really important i think the two most important things to look at in a pension fund if i'm trying to figure out its health is one what's its funded position is it fully funded? Is it underfunded? Is it overfunded? And then second, and this is where the rubber hits the road on a going concern assumption, is what's the discount rate? So if that, if the plan is uh, underfunded and has uh, a high discount rate, you've got big problems. If it's underfunded and it's got a low discount rate, you may have some room to maneuver. And if in an ideal world, it's got a lower discount rate and it's fully funded. Right. And, it, and I, it's want to one, I want to bake one more thing in. Ask you, what what the strategy that took place at OP Trust under when I was there? I, I don't know if they're continuing or not. I mean, it's still a, a great plan, but the strategy we had was we looked at the discount rate, and yeah, you look backwards, but we founded our discount rate on the investment concept of reversion to the mean. So in the investment world, there's this concept of you revert to the mean. So in good times, bad times could happen, and bad times, good times would happen. So what we would do is we would lower the discount rate 
as as far you know with subject to actuarial principles and the rest of it to maintain the fully funded status of the plan but to preserve a margin such that in a bad year you would be able to raise the discount rate release the surplus that you had preserved by uh, by lowering the discount rate and it would be and it was in keeping with investment theory because it, you know returns do uh, do go back up over time and that way, you're protecting the members because the fundamental issue for members is they don't care what you earn in a year. What they care is, are you going to keep your promise and will there be sufficient funds to pay me when I retire? I love that. Uh, I mean, that whole, uh, we should like just hit copy and paste on everything Hugh just said and put it up on on the, on the website. Because it, in fact, I stole, sorry, I was inspired by Hugh uh, in one of the papers I wrote to to come up with a pension health metric that is literally based on uh, a, an examination of the funded status and the discount rate. And the higher the funded status and the lower the discount rate is how you can think of as pension health as a, as a metric. And I love hearing, um, Hugh, uh, this little add-on that you've had since we did those those discussions a few years ago, which is that this could kind of be a regulator where, look, as the, as the status of the plan gets better, let's drop the discount rate because the it, the funded status gets too high. If it gets too high, you see politicians saying, well, maybe we should take some money out of the plan. And so by keeping the interest rate or the discount rate let down, you can kind of manage that political pressure. Well, absolutely. And there's only one certainty about all the assumptions that you put into the actuarial report. There's only one thing for sure. They're all going to be wrong. <laughs> It's just because, you know, you're projecting out years ahead. So what's it going to look like five, 10 years from now? Who knows? Yeah. And the key thing from a member's point of view, like if you're saying we have the best plan in the world, man, and earns 20% a year. uh, Okay. Am I going to get what I promised? And also maintaining the contribution levels, same price, same benefit. That's what members deserve. Yeah, there's so many follow-ups here from my... I'm going to do two at you real quick, and then I'm going to let Sloan ask a couple of questions. One, how the hell do we build compensation plans to to drive towards pension health rather than just making 20% per year? That's the first thing. Let me get the second one in. Second one in is, is, is this also why so many plans are pursuing alternative assets? Because the accounting is kind of like, you know, put your finger in the air. And that allows you to have this kind of flexibility again. It's another way of kind of um, banking gains without actually revealing it to the world. So those those are two, I think, really important questions that I think you can probably answer better than anybody. Well, it's it's very, Ashby, can you just repeat the first one again? How do we build a compensation plan, right? Okay. So here's two things. tried this, probably didn't work out as there were made some mistakes in this. I think fundamentally, the compensation of investment professionals, some, uh, depending on where they are in the hierarchy, some or all of it should be dependent upon the funded status of the plan. Because, you know, we talk about alignment and typically in the corporate world, and of course, this leads to a lot of, my opinion, not non-alignment, but, you know, you link it to share price. But if you link comp to funded position of the plan, if that's a measure, if you can effectively measure how it is you're taking risk and whether or not you're getting appropriately rewarded for that risk, I think that's another element. Benchmarks belong in there somewhere, but I think 
the thing you need to be really careful about with benchmarks is a lot of people will think, well, you know, if I give you a high benchmark, it means you have to work hard and earn your money. Okay, fair enough. But it also means you're going to be taking more risk. So true. And you've got to, I view that as the three things uh, you need to balance. Alternative asset classes, wow, that's a big issue. Uh, first of all, discount rates, uh, the way they work is it's the risk-free uh, rate plus uh, a risk premium. So certain alternative assets, private equity, infrastructure, real estate, historically, they get, an a, they get a, a premium over and above a typical equity rate. So that promotes, so the more of those illiquids you invest in, the potential to have a, a higher discount rate that's justifiable by the actuaries. But the pro, but here's what happens. Those assets are so-called level three valuations. They're not publicly traded. So And then the accountants set a range for the value, a low range and a high range, but it gives management the ability to control the valuation of those assets. And there's the potential to manipulate those numbers such that if you had a bad year in other asset classes, you can have a good year in those ones. I'm not saying that that happens. First of all, I'm not saying it happens at all, but there's that potential there. Uh, yeah, far be it from us to suggest that anybody would <laughs> would, would uh, you know kind of p- push an assumption around. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I want to get back to. Sorry, I, sorry. The other oh, issue we're going to confront right now is a lot of pension plans, whether they're north or south of the border, have really poured into these alternative asset classes. Private equities held up very well in the pandemic, probably made money. Uh, commercial real estate offices. I don't know how you're going to value that. I really don't. I think it's going to be mm. a difficulty and a lot of infrastructure is transportation related. And if you're not leaving your house, you're not, you know, you're not using transportation. Sorry for talking over you. That's a great question. Not at all. Uh, that's a no, great I question. I mean, maybe our, we can get our some. Our packets are delayed here. I think that's what's going on. Yeah, exactly. We've got some, uh, some internet issues. Um, but maybe like, uh, you know, we could get some answers in from the, uh, the free money faithful, uh, on the audience. We can, we can take that up in another episode. But, um, I, you know, one of the things I, I have to ask just because I, I love the, you know, how gothy the, a lot of these topics are, right? Like, you know, if you look at the, that plan monitor that I talked about, um, it lists, you know, a, an op, as an optimistic assumption that people will die very soon. Um, is this based on like kind of a subjective opinion that, you know, the sweet embrace of death is something that we should all look forward to or, or like, talk to me about how that's good. Well, the problem with the issue with mortality is it's been up until three or four years ago, it's been just uh, straight up improvement. And the longer the people, longer people live, uh, the more they're, the more pension income they're going to consume. So the famous story is, you know, when the retirement age was uh, set by Bismarck at 65, when pensions were introduced in Germany, you you know, no one lived at 65. Mm. But but this uh, mortality assumption can have a big effect on your plan liabilities. It's something that a lot of the Canadian plans strengthened from about 2001 on. The opioid crisis in on both sides of the border has actually reduced life expectancies. But uh, mortality assumptions is another place where uh, where pension plan liabilities have grown. So longer you live, 
more pension mm-hmm. money you spend, more pension you need, um, greater the liability for the fund. Yet another easy to manage problem for our friends of the pension fund infrastructure. Um, you know the the. But but that's the point is they have to manage it. A lot of people yeah. defer making the decision, and that's the problem in the pension world. The longer you wait to make a decision, the more it's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean the you know, I, and I think you know in terms of decisions that are available to make right now for the first time in. Uh, you know, as long as I can remember, like maybe three or four years, we have like a term structure of interest rates that's somewhat material, right? We actually have a spread of like 1% finally between short and long-term bonds. Um, and I wonder about, I wonder if you could talk about kind of the accounting implications of that versus the practical implications of that for folks who are uh, are, are managing, uh, pension assets. Well, but the problem with whether it's, whether you're at the short end of the curve or the long end of the, cur- uh, or the long end, uh, those interest rates are historically low. Mm, and yeah. that creates massive problems for pension funds because it's that risk-free rate that drives the discount rate. So what yeah. I think it means in terms of many of the U.S. state plans, Ashby, did you say CalPERS was at seven and a quarter? I, last I saw, they were trying to get down under seven. So they may actually be at 6.9 at this point. Um, I can. What, five to 600 basis points over the 30, the U.S. 30 year rate? Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot. That's, a, yeah, that's a pretty giant spread. And then I think long rates are going to be low for, I don't know, 10 more years. Yep. I think the Fed guidance was like as long as we can imagine at this time. Well, and we have this. Uh, because of the central bank intervention since the global financial crisis, <clears throat> uh, public markets are quite addicted to, to uh, low interest rates and it drives money there. So uh, that's a whole other set of issues. Um, but I, I would, I think uh, as a result of low interest rates, the role of bonds in these in planned portfolios has really changed. Are they still defensive mm-hmm. assets? Is there a need for different kinds of long-term assets? The disruption that the pandemic has accelerated, you know, people working at home. You know, you want to hear something crazy? You know what's being talked about in oh, some yeah. environment, in some oh, environments? So if uh, you're an office worker, and uh, so, you know, once we all return to whatever is normal, it, there may be a decision, you know what, we only need you in the office two days a week, otherwise work from home. And by the way, if you want to come and work the other three days, then you're going to chip in on the rent. So say you're making a hundred thousand bucks a year, well, you'll make 98 if you want to come to the office every day. What? You know, we broke the news here, Hugh, that CalPERS was not going to have half their workforce coming back ever. Uh, Marcy, uh, the CEO, was on here and she, we broke the news. Uh, But it is. Yeah, no big deal. MBD. But uh, yeah, so like that's real. Like they are never going to bring back half the workforce. They're going to be remote. Yeah. My, my, my partner's company has done exactly that. They're saying, you know, we're going to do two, three days. I, they're not going so far as to, as to charge her if she decides to go into the office. Um, but it, it looks like it's going to be two or three days in the office for everyone. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've been talking over you guys. I love talking about this stuff. It's fascinating. You've done you, like, you, <laughs> we should just wind you up and let you go. Seriously. <laughs> you know, but, but 
when you're talking about these, I mean, to me, I'm gonna. This is the last comment, and then we'll let you go. But for me, when I hear about the, isn't Sloan gonna ask any questions? (laughs) I've asked a bunch. (laughs) Asked you a bunch. So the final one is for me, though, Hugh is. I want to think about this subsidy or this opportunity when you have low interest rates and high discount rates. We're basically telling the pension funds, you have to go out and add alpha. That's really the only choice you have to meet this distant obligation. Now, up until now, that's been an enormous subsidy of private equity and hedge fund general partners. This is why we have so many billionaires, because the pension funds have basically been told by their masters, go make more money than you could reasonably make in passive investments. And the only people out there selling that, you know, snake oil in some cases, jazz hands in other cases, and real returns in yet other cases are the private equity and hedge funds and venture funds if if you can go that small. But maybe it's an opportunity now to go invest in clean energy infrastructure, to invest in new drug discovery, to invest in these other things. So are you, do you have optimism about that pursuit of alpha or do you think it's just a scheme to help, you know, Wall Street get even richer? Uh, well, the, the potential for the rich to get richer is, uh, you know, it's been ever thus. Yeah. But... What I am excited by, Ashby, and this is something that I've been devoting quite a bit of time to, is the notion, uh, and in fact, trying to raise a fund around it, if I might, uh, working with some other people, is the notion of creating a new asset class, a new long-term asset class that uh, I'm a big believer in the in the concept of long-term capitalism that's propagated by the long-term stock exchange and Eric Reese and others. And I think... You've heard of them. Yeah, they're pretty (laughs) awesome. But uh, so my view is a mix of private and public companies in a long-term fund where the public companies are companies that either adhere to long-term capitalism uh, principles, stakeholder promoting stakeholder interests, the communities they're in, and advocating for those, and then adding a side pocket that consists of companies that are private or on the way to going private. Because the fundament, the problem a lot of institutional investors face in terms of investing in the innovation economy is the innovation economy takes what are relative terms, small checks. Those, the, the institutional hurdle is the small check doesn't move the ner- the needle for them, but because but that it means that they miss out on a lot of these opportunities as the companies go public. So I think this kind of fund could help the could help democratize uh, the the private company world, could raise a lot of capital, and could ultimately drive fees down so that you know people will be rich, but uh, you know you don't have to be that rich. Yeah, it's like a it's a propeller private plane it's not a jet plane but yeah yeah i yeah. think <clears throat> what you're saying one is, is fascinating we're not going to let you walk out of here uh on that one because what i heard is a private public market strategy which you, i i'm warning you you will have trouble with some of the pension funds and figuring out where to stick you uh, yeah, well, because, they love their silos. They love exactly, their silos. That was exactly where I was going. But the second thing is, uh, before we let you go, take us 10 seconds or you know, whatever, however long you need to tell us what this new 
when you say new asset class, I'm, I'm thinking like d- different durations and bonds. Is that kind of what you're thinking about here for equities? No, what I'm thinking about is people are lazy. So they're, they're talking yeah. about, well, we need to replace bonds, so we'll buy PREF shares. No, what you need is an, a new long-term asset class where the long-term investment strategy promotes innovation promotes, this word's overused, but resilience, so that these mm-hmm. companies can withstand the disruptive elements that are coming their way, that they invest in R&D, they invest in technology, they stay on top of it, they treat the people who work for them well, because, look, you know, the political turbulence we're going through is because people are hurting and that has to stop. Mm-hmm. And, and companies need to play a role in making it stop. And then by investing in the private side, you get, you get exposure to good long-term investments. We, and we can be long-term investors in those companies. We can decide, you know, we, we, that, yeah, put, we'll be there with you uh, before you go public, but we don't want to leave the cap table at the moment you go public and get a big pop. We want to be there for the long term, and we want you to promote these values there. So we're touching companies across their life cycles. That's really interesting because, yeah, you don't like a lot of the time these these plans will, you know, have access to something. Maybe they were lucky enough to get access to it through a VC fund and then it goes public and the VC fund has to sell. And then they're paying another manager to uh, to buy it in the in the public fund later. That's it's really cool to realign that so that you can stay uh, invested through the whole life cycle. And I will tell you, Hugh, our, the, the free money podcast style guide, uh, just flipping <laughs> through here says, um, sustainability is an overused term. Resilience is actually the appropriate, uh, that's our style <laughs> guide, but yeah, uh, I think you, you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, Ashby, I, I, you know, I told you to almost since the day I met you, I'd love to go down to Kelpers and help fix it. Yeah. Well, um, this is a little known fact, but the largest, I found this out once when I spoke in California and I was worried because I was going to be offering up opinions <clears throat> and I'd offend people, some Canadian coming down and the, and the organizers of the conference said to me, the largest ethnic group in California is Canadians. Whoa. <laughs> That's uh, what? You, you gotta speak. I don't you, know that's what to do with do. that at you all. You gotta speak just here. Because <laughs> now I'm like, I guess I'm contributing to that. Exactly. Look, Hugh, we love you. Thank you so We're, much. This was fun. Thanks very much. I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity. Always great to talk to people as smart as uh, Sloan and you, Ashby. It's just great. Oh, uh-huh. the feeling is definitely mutual. Thank you for coming. Yeah, on. thank and you be, so much. Be safe this weekend, and and you know. Hopefully you guys have a little bit more political sanity north of the border than us and uh, we'll all get across January 20th and look to it, look to new beginnings. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we'll be, you know, sitting at the border, <laughs> like just not banging on the door. Yeah. Yeah. I got my passport in my pocket right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye. You. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so good. So when do we tell them that we've had like 22 people from LTSE on our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, someone out there is sitting there with like a free money podcast bingo. And it's like, you know, the LTSE gets brought up. Oh, they, yeah, they, just, they just pounded their beer uh, big yeah. time. Yeah. Um, yeah.
That was great. I love, I mean, I love Hugh. You know, funny thing about Hugh, I first met him when I was uh, doing my doctorate. He was one of my uh, data points because he was this like super uh, well-known pension lawyer in Canada who had like been working all these labor issues. And so, you know, and doing a whole series of case studies and qualitative research, he was one of the people I, I approached to participate and was very gracious with his time and efforts. And then obviously I had a chance to work with him when he was mm. CEO at OP Trust. Um, but you can just tell why it's just so fun to work with him. He's just so yeah. thoughtful and he, you know, he doesn't pull punches. So yeah. Thoughtful and opinionated is a great combo. We like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, All right. Where are we? What's happening? I, I think, I mean, I think we're about a, a dear Ashby o'clock. Dear Ashby. That was, I didn't, I didn't quite hear, hear it as well as I you thought. You didn't hear I the would. horn? Well, I, <laughs> we'll get it I, in there. I, you know, I, th- I think that might be a symptom of COVID. You better. <laughs> yeah, that is my, as my ears are clogged. Blindness to, to the Dear Ashby horn. Um, but the, so the, we have some great questions this week, um, in, in part because we haven't been podcasting as much recently. So uh, just a quick reminder to everyone who's listening send us in questions. Um, you know, this is the segment where uh, Ashvia has to answer them. Um, so you can just go ahead and email them to freemoneypod at gmail.com, freemoneypod at gmail.com, or just get them to either of us if you have our, our contact info. This um, is where I always expect you to say, slide into our DMs. Slide into our DMs. You know, somebody, it, it's, it has been told to me that, that slide into DMs implies like... <laughs> oh, no. Talk sexy to us, basically. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> in no way. <laughs> so feel free to slide into our DMs. Yeah, yeah. So, so slide into Ashby's DMs on LinkedIn. So. And, <laughs> um, uh, so the, the first one that I have this week is uh, you know, Simple, which is this bank that people love, oh, yes. um, especially yeah, in the tech community, um, provided budgeting tools and other kind of really good personal finance aids to its customers. Um, it announced it was shutting down this week for uh, quote-unquote business reasons. I think this is the, the best example out there of a startup doing like friendly-to-consumer banking. Um, why is it so hard to make a good bank? Well, I think business reasons, Sloan. Uh, <laughs> no. First off, first off, I think part of it is the huge competition among these neobanks right now. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to um, justify the acquisition cost. So what, you know, maybe our listeners don't realize this, like banks stare at us and they have a bunch of numbers that they're just like putting on us immediately. Yep. One is how much it, it it costs to acquire us as customers. And a lot of banks and brokerages will pay well beyond 50, 75, 100,000 in the case of brokerages just to get you in with a, with a, yep. what we call a funded account. Now, if you are willing to set up a debit card, you're worth even more. If you're willing to set up um, direct deposit, you're worth even more than that. And so the challenge here is one of business reasons, but those reasons are, do the cost of acquisition numbers to move you into these various products, are they made up for in the form of um, long-term value, LTV? Mm, Yep. So the, the, you know, the, what you hear people saying is uh, venture investors, what's the CAC and LTV of these users? You know, what is yeah. the cost of acquisition and long-term value? 
And my guess here, and I, I don't have any special insight to Simple, but I have built, um, you know, a direct-to-consumer finance application. So I understand a lot of this stuff is it's very hard to get an LTV, long-term value, um, beyond what you need on the CAC, what, what it costs to acquire people. Mm. Um, and, and so that, I think, is a very pervasive trend, especially as you saw so much capital sloshing into fintech apps yeah. because they've been bidding up the price of acquisition. You know, I've heard recently that like companies are doing astoundingly well if they can acquire you for 75 bucks. Mm. So just recognize that if they acquire you for 75 bucks, they need to make a hundred more off of you. Yeah. Right. Like pretty quickly too, because there's a repayment period. They don't want to see you getting, you know, them making their money back in 18 months, they want to see their money back in six months. And so how do they make that much money off of you? They give you, you know, is it credit cards? Is it loans? What is it? And so despite the fact that people were in love with simple, it ain't simple to make the economics work. And I think Mm. that's probably why um, they've left the business. There's a great tagline there. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we could just go back and say business reasons. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's depressing as all hell, but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Yeah, it's like weird to think like you have this like long-term value stuck above your head and everybody's trying to figure out, you know. And and by the way, this is why a lot of financial services firms just don't really give a hoot about, you know, people who don't make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, now there's the, uh, payday loan people, which are, you know, extorting money out of people. But, but aside from like that, the, the barbells of like the really poor people who, Mm. um, you know, are paying huge interest rates on credit cards and going to payday loans. And then the really wealthy people, there's this whole in between that isn't really well served right now by the financial services community. And, and that's the opportunity, but also the challenge to make those traditional metrics work. All right. Off my high horse. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's the the same alignment problem we talk about all all, yeah. all the time. Um, all the time. The So the next question is, um, if you are a software engineer who wants to work somewhere that contributes to the world in a net positive way, where would you work right now? And this person's looking for companies, not like locations. Ah, uh, because I was going to say Free Money Podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> This is the biggest impact. If you're looking to have, like, I'm surprised we don't have a lot of impact investors, Sloan, coming to us and just saying, what can I do? You know, how how do I get on your capitalization table, whatnot? (laughs) Um, It's... it's full right now. So there's a lot of FOMO going on around Free Money Podcast. Uh, You could miss out. Um, I think we have a free... I'll stop it. You got free money at LEA and a sports drink. Yeah. <laughs> we've got multiple. Look, we've, got a hu- we've got the hugest CAC you've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> or the, 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 the smallest CAC you've ever seen. Our CAC is uh, <laughs> Okay. So uh, I would go work at... Um, First of all, I'll start generically and say, I still believe that we need more software and data and technology in the investment business. Yeah. You know, like it's this underserved area where, you know, there's a hundred and twenty trillion dollars sitting in these pension funds, and these pension funds are like 
looking, you know, I heard it from Hugh today, looking to hedge funds and private equity funds and all yeah. these like ridiculously expensive platforms to generate the wealth they need to pay, you know, old age pensions. Um, there's got to be smarter ways to deploy that capital. So if, if I was a, a software engineer just starting out looking for an industry to build expertise in, you know, not just like having my software expertise, but building an expertise in a domain, I would go after um, wealth management, wealth tech, or cap mm. tech, the flow of capital. Now, the one, <clears throat> the personal news uh, this week, if you were uh, checking my LinkedIn, which I think 21 of you were, um, is that I, Adapar acquired one of the companies I started. And That's right. So I am, I, I don't know if you knew this long, but I'm now the head of institutions at, at Adapar. And Adapar oh, wow. is this uh, guy. precisely the kind of place that I would suggest you go and look for a job because it's, we are trying to bring transparency to the world's capital markets and do all the things that I often talk about, which is why I'm so excited about it. Hmm. And I did well, not, you we did not plant that question. Okay. The, the, you, you're <laughs> stunned, which is, which is yeah, evidence that it like, was not a plant. I am yeah, not sliding uh, into the I DMs mean, under, under false pretense. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, there we go. Get, you know, jobs at Adapar. Um, yeah. the, the last one is, this is, I, I, it gives me so much joy to ask this question in honor of Donald Trump getting banned from Twitter. Who would you bring back to Twitter uh, from getting banned or from beyond the grave? Yeah, the one I miss most um, is this. It was. It may have been a little too Silicon Valley for the, the the general free money audience, but we used to have this fake account here card called Startup L Jackson. Startup L Jackson. Yeah, you've ever Startup L Jackson? Hell yeah! Oh, and it was so funny. It was just like poking fun at all of the insanity of um, of VCs. I mean, the other one that I would be um, really sad if it disappeared was, I think it's like VCs celebrating themselves or something. Oh, yep, yep, yeah. What, there what's is. that one? Yeah, the, the, the username is uh, let me know how I can be helpful, which is such a VC. <laughs> is that the username? And that, but the, I, the title is like VCs. VCs congratulating themselves. themselves. Yeah, yeah, VCs congratulating themselves. And, and I love that because the, the shit that they post, you're like, is this real? <laughs> um, but it is. But Startup L. Jackson was like a, almost more thoughtful than that. And so I miss that account. It, it was run by the guy, one of the co-founders of AngelList. So yep. I think at a certain point, it just got too much to handle. And he came out and said who, you know, who he was and never posted again. So that was the tragedy. So I'd want to bring that back um, and, and get that going again. Yep. Yeah. That, I mean, like if... How about that, you? You know, okay. So the, the one that uh, goes off and comes back from time to time is, is Drill, the classic winner of Twitter, uh, you know, who among other things, like, I think my favorite drill, drill tweet recently is, um, you know, I take back what I said about ISIS. You do not under any circumstances got to hand it to them. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's, I, I just, sometimes I just look at that uh, account and just laugh my ass off. And incidentally, they have a, uh, a free money style show themselves called truth point. That's on cartoon network. Oh, really? Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm yeah. glad we could influence that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they call us out as they're, uh, they're, they're inspired um, by. Yeah, exactly. They've been uh, chilling at the atelier. All right. Well, that was a good show, I think. <laughs> yeah, that about does it for us. Thank you all so much for listening. Bye. We love you. Bye. I'm looking
your rain on them. <laughs>